Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm starting a series this morning called Timeless Christmas. And what I wanted to do is just take some timeless truths from, from the whole idea, from the whole event of Christmas and show you how applicable Christmas is. And it's not just a time to sing songs and have trees and give gifts, but Christmas really changed everything. And in our house, we have a debate. My, my favorite holiday is Christmas. I love everything about it except the crowds because I'm scared of crowds. Um, it's, it's okay. I have issues. I'm working with that. My therapist and I are working on that. But, um, but I really do. I can speak to crowds. It's okay. But if all of you tried to stand up here, it'd freak me out. And so <laughs> you can put me in front of thousands of people. I don't even get nervous. But you send me to a Mavericks game where I have to get in amongst the people and find my seat. Oh, it freaks me out. I just have to pray through it, pray in tongues, everything I can do, Hail Marys, all that kind of stuff just to get to my chair. You understand what I'm saying? And so um, you can just pray for me. Just pray for your pastor. He's just not quite there yet. But, um, but anyways, I was thinking, and so my favorite holiday is Christmas. I love Christmas. And uh, we have a debate in our house because Julie's favorite holiday is Easter. So I'm just going to ask, how many of your favorite holiday is Christmas? All right, how many of your favorite holiday is Easter? All right, see, there are more Christmases. All right, let me explain why, because I explained this to my wife. I told Julie, she's like, honey, you know, Easter is really the more important holiday because without Easter... We don't have forgiveness of sin in a relationship with God. And I said, I completely agree. Except for the fact that without Christmas, we don't get Easter. And so, <laughs> and so for me, it was, I'm a Christmas elf. So anyways, um, but I want to talk about some timeless truths. And so there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Um, I call this message Christmas Possibilities because I don't know about you, but there just seems to be just some, some, special, some special mojo when it comes to Christmas. Can you just, some things seem more possible at Christmas that aren't possible any other time. It's, right? like, for instance, at Christmas, people who haven't been getting along all year sometimes can get in the same house and have a meal together and no one dies and it's like only Christmas could make that possible. I remember growing up, I used to always want a dirt bike. And so I begged for a dirt bike, pleaded for a dirt bike, showed my parents pictures of dirt bikes. And, you know, my parents were wise. They knew probably if they got me a dirt bike that they would have one less child. <laughs> and, um, and so it just every time I talked about a dirt bike, no, 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 no. But then one Christmas... The impossible became possible. And no, I didn't get a dirt bike because they had wisdom, but I got a moped. 
that I rode like a dirt bike. I herded my grandfather's cows with that moped. <laughs> I think we had some cows die because of that moped. But anyways, I, you know, it just, but I finally, you know, it wasn't possible any other time of year, but all of a sudden at Christmas, the impossible became possible. And I think Christmas makes some things possible that weren't previously possible. And that's what I want to talk about. So I'll give you three of those today. And there's a long list, but let me give you three that the Lord has just been stirring within my own heart. And the first one is this. Christmas made it possible to know God. Christmas made it possible to know God. Uh, the verse we just read, Matthew one twenty three, it says, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Um, this is actually prophesied by Isaiah. It's actually prophesied 740 years before Jesus is actually born. It's a long time. Uh, and it was prophesied to a king, King Ahaz. He wasn't a very good king. He was a king over, um, over Israel. The kingdoms of Israel was divided. And it was a prosperous time really for both the, the northern and southern kingdom. But it was also a silent time and a dark time. And the voice of the Lord was rare. And the Persians were the big power. And King Ahaz had made, a, had made a, a covenant or a deal with the king of Persia to say, I'm going to essentially sell all of Israel into slavery to you as long as you take care of me. And Isaiah comes with a word from the Lord to say, hey, God's going to take care of Israel and you need to stand for Israel. And so he tells King Ahaz, you need to ask God for a sign that what I'm telling you is true. And King Ahaz said, I don't want to ask for a sign because I don't want to test God. All right? And, and it sounds really spiritual when you hear it. But then if you know, he's already cut a deal. The truth was, he didn't want to ask God for a sign, not because he didn't want to test God, but because he didn't want to trust God. You know, it's not always easy to trust God in adverse situations. Right? I think sometimes that's why the only place in the Bible where God says you can test him is with your tithe. Tre test me with this. Try me with this. It's the only place. And so many times, you know why we don't tithe? It's not because we don't want to test God. It's because we don't want to trust him. Because it's too difficult. It's hard. It takes a lot of faith. It makes us uncomfortable. What if it doesn't work out? Right? And so, so the prophet looks at the king and says, you're not going to ask for a sign, but God's going to give you a sign. He's going to give you a sign that he's always going to be with Israel and that he's always going to stand with Israel. And that sign is a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and they're going to call his name Emmanuel. They're going to call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? Well, it means God with us, right? God with us. What Christmas makes possible that was never possible before is God came to live with us. And because God came to live with us, it shows us very much that God wants, God wants to be near us. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures, John 1.14 says, Then the Word became flesh. And the Word there is talking of Jesus, saying the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, And we beheld His glory. Right? We beheld His majesty, His goodness. We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Like, God wanted to be with us so much that the king of the universe put on the flesh of humans. And he didn't come down in a parade. 
And he didn't come down in a big chariot. And he didn't come down with a throne. He came through a virgin, wrapped in flesh, became a baby who couldn't even care for himself, was laid in a manger, taken care of by fallen humans, raised in our world to, 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 to be completely connected with us, our high priest tempted in every way that we were tempted. And then at just the right time, he died our death. It tells you how much God wants to be with us. Now, why does God want to be with us that much? Because God wants us to know him. Do you know that? God knows you, but God wants you to know him. That's why God sent Jesus. In fact, we can read this. Jeremiah prophesied it, and then the writer of Hebrews quotes it. Hebrews 8, verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So time out. There was, how many of you know there was an old covenant? Most people refer to that as the Old Testament, but it was an old covenant. It was based on the law. It was based on sacrifices and priests and, and all of those things. And, and then but what God said is, but the old covenant didn't give you a relationship with me. And so the whole idea of Jesus coming was to give us a new covenant. The writer of Hebrews says a new covenant based on better promises. And he's going to tell us what that looks like. So he's going to say, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and I'll write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And none of them will teach his neighbor and none of them his brother saying, know the Lord. Watch this. For all shall know me. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. Do you understand what, Jesus, what God is saying? I'm going to send Jesus. He's going to take their sin. He's going to die their death. And here's why. Because I want them to know me. Like I'm not satisfied with them not knowing me. And so I'm going to send Jesus. I'm going to create another covenant that's not based on their frailty, that doesn't have to be upheld by their flesh. It's going to be based on Jesus' performance and not their performance. We call that grace. But I'm doing all this so that no one has to tell anyone else, hey, you should know the Lord. I'm doing all this so everyone can know me. Do you know how we know people? And I'm not talking about Facebook creeping. <laughs> you know, you do that. Like you run into somebody from your high school days. You're all going to creep them on Facebook and see if their life's better than yours. And, you know, your teenager's got a new boyfriend. You're like, I'm going to creep him. And you should, parents. You should be. And here's why. Here's why. Because their brains aren't formed yet. And that's science, friend. Until they're 24, 25 years old, the brains don't even work right. How many of you are now over 25, 26 you know, years old, and you realize, hey, my brain didn't work right? You know what I'm saying? That's why I did dumb stuff. All right? That's why you need to be creeping on your teenager's friends. All right. Anyways, I'm not talking about Facebook creeping, but how do we really know people? If you think about it, the way we know people is by the, the way we experience them. Isn't that the truth? In fact, sometimes, it, you know, in... You know, new skills I've learned, but but sometimes you know, with Julie, with the kids or staff, whoever, I'll stop and say, "Hey, tell me how you're experiencing me right now." Like if all of a sudden I feel attention or something like, "Hey, how are you experiencing me right now?" Well, you seem really upset. Okay, 
Do you feel like I'm upset with you? Yeah, you're upset. No, truthfully, I'm not upset with you. I'm, I'm upset about something else, but you're having an experience and I'm upset. We need to clarify so that your experience with me is true to who I am and not true to what I'm going through. Right? And, and so the way we know people is the experience that we have with them, right? And God wants us to know him. So how are we going to know God? Well, the best way to know him is to experience him. Can I give you a scripture? It's apparently been in the Bible since it's been written. <laughs> have you ever had one of those moments? Like, you know, you've been reading the Bible for years and you read and you're like, holy crap, I didn't know that was in there. Like, <laughs> I read this 10 times, you know. John 17, it's Jesus praying. And watch what he says. Oh, righteous father, the world doesn't know you, right? Here's the problem. The world doesn't know you, but I do. Here's the solution. And these disciples know you've sent me. Here's the bridge. Verse 26. I have revealed you to them. Do you see that? I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Do you see that? You know what Jesus is saying? God, you sent me so they could experience you. Right? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I don't say anything of my own accord. I say only what I hear from the Father. I don't do anything except for what I see the Father. Right? And so here's what Jesus said. God, you sent me so people could have an experience with you. You sent me so that the woman at the well could experience a God who doesn't condemn but sets free. You sent me so that the leper who was called unclean and judged for his sin, because surely if he was sick, he must have sin, could know that even though you're clean, you're not scared to touch someone who's not clean. And that by touching someone who's not clean, you can make them clean. He had an experience, right? He had an experience with a woman with an issue of blood that no one else could help. But she experienced a God that if she would just go to him and touch him, she would be made clean. Blind Bartimaeus experienced God as a God who's not too busy to stop on the way to where he's going and heal the eyesight of a man who everybody else told to shut up. Right? Zacchaeus experienced a God who is not too good to hang out at a sinner's house. And Mary Magdalene experienced a Jesus who's not too good to allow his feet to be washed by a prostitute. The people of Canaan experienced a God who likes to party because when they ran out of wine, he made more. Whatever your experience is with God, Jesus came to give us an experience with God. And, and he continues to do it. Right? Here's what the Bible says. In fact, here's what Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except I'm still here to give you an experience with God so you can know him. That's what Christmas is about. We, we can know God. Here's the second possibility of Christmas. We can know the voice of God. We can know the voice of God. It's interesting because Malachi ends the, the Old Testament. The, the, the prophet Malachi, he concludes what we know as the Old Testament. 
And then Matthew begins what we know as the New Testament. But between those two are 435 years of silence. It, it goes completely quiet. Ma, of course, my, uh, I had to check with this. I think it went quiet because Malachi preached on tithing and people got mad and stopped praying. <laughs> That's just my, I don't know, you know, could, I don't know, could be, you know, it, they weren't pathway people. You know, here we preach on tithing, people get saved, God moves, you know. But back then they were under the old covenant and he preached on tithing and they quit talking to God. But anyways, but it's 435 years of silence. A lot happens. It goes from the Babylonian rule to the Persian rule to the Roman rule and Alexander the Great is during this time. A lot happens in that time, but, but no one hears from God. God doesn't speak. And then all of a sudden Matthew opens up to lay the groundwork for the birth of the Messiah, and all of a sudden, everybody's getting a word from God. Zechariah gets a word from God about John the Baptist. An angel comes and visits Mary. Uh, you know, God talks to Joseph. God, you know, you know, God talks to a man named Simeon that he's going to get to see the Messiah. God announces the birth of Jesus to a bunch of shepherds, freaks them out, right? God puts a star in the sky and talks to wise men, kings that come from a long ways off to come meet the king of the Jews and to worship him. I mean, it's almost like all of a sudden where there's been no voice of God on the earth, when Christmas time hits, God starts talking again. It's almost like the birth of the Messiah is the resounding hello from heaven that says, I'm here and I speak I want you to know me, and I want you to hear me. It's really awesome when you think about it. Um, Jesus came so we could know God, but he came so we could know the voice of God. In fact, in John 10, 27, very famous scripture, but John 10, 27 just says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Um. I, you know, I was reading this excerpt from a book, um, sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. These two ladies wrote it, and uh, they're giving an account of being in um, in Israel, in, in in Jerusalem, and these shepherds. You know, we Westerners think about the way we raise livestock, and we think that's the way you do it. In other words, we have pens and fences and pastures, right, that are all fenced in, but that's not how it's done over there because grass is sparse. And so literally over there, the shepherd has to lead the sheep to a pasture, and then he may have to lead them quite a ways to another pasture. And so they can't just put up a fence and the sheep be okay. He has to lead them to... That's why when God says, I'm going to lead you into green pastures, what he's saying essentially is, I'm going to, I'm going to provide for you, but if you don't follow me, you're probably going to die. You're not going to find the pasture on your own because there's grass not everywhere. Right? It's a good word. But... but um. But do you see what I'm saying? And, and so they're watching, and on this road, these shepherds are literally leading their flocks, and the shepherds all know each other, and they come together, and they start talking on the road, and all their sheep get intermingled. And, and they're sitting there thinking, well, how are they going to be able to, because they're not branded, how are they going to be able to separate their sheep back out? And then when they get ready, one shepherd gets ready to leave, and he makes some kind of noise with his voice, says something, makes a noise, and starts walking, and all his sheep just go with him. Like the sheep were not the least bit confused about who their shepherd was. And then the next one, he gets ready, he makes a different noise, he, he uses his voice, and his sheep just start 
following him. And then the third one makes a sound and his sheep start following him. When we read John 10, 27, we need to understand that Jesus has given us an analogy that he's a shepherd and sheep always know the voice of their shepherd. In fact, if you studied that, that text in the original language, it actually means a sheep has the ability and capacity to hear and understand his shepherd's voice. And I just thought, how did those sheep learn to hear their shepherd and not the other shepherd? Like, how did they learn that skill? And then I just, I I just, it came to me, probably God, but I'm going to say it came to me. But I thought, oh, because they were born into his flock and he's the first voice they heard. And so that's the voice they followed. And then I thought, and I was born into Jesus' flock. And I was born into when he called my name, right? And I was drawn by the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I was born into his flock. And now I have the ability to hear his voice. And the way that he leads is with his voice. Shepherds don't drive sheep. They lead them. And then I thought, what happens if I don't listen to or I don't heed his voice? Oh, All we like sheep have gone astray. What's the consequence for not following his voice? See, it's very important. Jesus, it's not a luxury to hear the voice of God. That's what you need to understand. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. Because if I can't hear his voice, I can't follow him. And if I don't follow him, I will find pain. Right? That's what happens. Sometimes shepherds have a sheep that they don't want to heed the voice of the shepherd and they keep running off. And that's why he has to leave the 99 and go after the one because that sheep ran off because he didn't heed the voice of the shepherd. He didn't listen. And you know what the shepherds do sometimes with a sheep that won't listen and keeps running off? They have a, they have a, it's called, you know, when Psalm 23 talks about the rod and the staff, it's actually one stick, but the rod is the straight end of it and the staff is the crooked end of it. And the rod is for the wolves. That's what they beat the wolves with when they come for the sheep. But, but the staff, the crooked end, the curved end, when they have a sheep that refuses to heed the voice of the shepherd and continues to wander off and get hung in thorns and caught in rocks, the shepherd will literally come to that sheep. He'll take the, the crook of that staff and catch the sheep's leg in it, and he'll twist it, and he breaks the leg of the sheep. And then he takes the sheep and picks him up and puts him on his shoulders and carries him back to the herd and he'll carry that sheep until its leg heals. But do you know why he breaks the sheep's leg? To save it. Because he knows if I don't teach him to stay with me, I'm going to lose him. Do you know sometimes God allows pain in our life because he doesn't want to lose us? Because he knows, interestingly enough, pain drives a closeness with the shepherd. And sometimes the only way for God to get us to let him put us on his shoulders is a little bit of pain. But in giving us a little bit of pain, he saves us from destruction. And Jesus came so we could not only know the shepherd, but so that we could hear the shepherd. Because if we can't hear him, We can't follow him. So the possibility of knowing God, the possibility of knowing his voice. And here's the last thing, the possibility 
of knowing his kingdom. The possibility of knowing his kingdom. Uh, Matthew 2, if you went on to read, we didn't read it, but Matthew 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now time out, we need to talk about Herod the king. He wasn't just a Bible character. Herod the king here is actually the, the historical king, Herod the Great. And he wasn't called Herod the Great because he was a great king. He was actually ruthless, right? Uh, actually, one of, I mean, every wife that he had, he had a lot of wives, everyone was either exiled or killed, right? And one of it said, history records, his, his favorite wife, he had a favorite, and he had her killed, and then he kind of regretted it. He had a big heart. <laughs> Another thing he did that was so ruthless is he was going to die. He had a sickness, and he was about to die, and he knew he was about to die, and he had his oldest son, who the people loved, and he actually loved. But five days before he died, he had his oldest son executed because he didn't want anyone to have his throne. And so he's not known as Herod the Great. And that's why I want you to understand when, when he makes the plot with the wise man because they come to Herod and they say, we're here to worship the one born king of the Jews. And he freaks out because he's like, wait a second, there's a king being born. And so he tells the wise man, you go find him and come back and report to me. It's because he was not only going to kill Jesus, he was going to kill the witnesses. In fact, if you remember, uh, it's called the slaughter of innocence. He had every male between the ages of birth and two years around Bethlehem murdered because he was trying to exterminate the king of the Jews. The thing was, God spoke to Joseph in a dream and said, get Jesus and Mary and go into Egypt so that you'll be safe. You can't mess with God. He's got intel like you don't believe. <laughs> but he's known as Herod the Great because he was a great builder. He built uh, Caesarea, the port city. He named it Caesarea after Caesar because he was trying to manipulate Caesar. He built Masada, which was a great spa, still in exists, still the greatest spa probably in the world. And, and then um, he built a lot of things, but he built the Western Wall or the, or the Wailing Wall, which was a retaining wall to expand the temple grounds because he was trying to manipulate the Jews. Do you see kind of a pattern? He's trying to manipulate everybody. Um, so that's why he's known as Herod the Great. He's a great builder. And so you need to know it's not a storybook character or just a biblical character. This is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was actually very insecure about the king of the Jews, and he's trying to kill him. So he's, they, they said... so. So continue, verse 6 said, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and come to worship him. So that's what the wise men are saying. But here's what you need to know about the Bible that records it, and Herod believes it, and the wise men who are also kings um, also believed it, recorded it, and laid aside their lives. Um, it was probably years before they found Jesus. In fact, if you read the text, not to mess up your nativity scene, the wise men weren't there the night Jesus was born. The star appeared when Jesus was born. It took them about two years to get to Jesus. And when they actually meet Jesus, he's a young child and not a baby. And so they went on a long pursuit. Just a plug, if you, if you get our podcast, God, Life, and Pathway, this month's episode is called Be a Wise Man. In other words, lay aside everything and pursue Jesus. Go find Jesus, right? And so that's literally what they did. But here's what you need to know all of them agreed on. He's a king, there's a king being born. It's not a baby. He's a king. Now, the king may look like a baby, but there's a king in the baby, right? And you need to understand things about kings. They always have kingdoms. And so there's a king being born, and he's the king of something. He's the king of the kingdom. And then you need to understand the significance of this king being born. 
And here's the significance. And I'll go all the way back to Genesis just for fun. The Bible tells us there are two realms that are very important, heaven and earth, right? Heaven and earth. And it also tells us that the fixed point, the fulcrum, the connection between heaven and earth, believe it or not, is not God. It was man. God created Adam and said, Adam, I want you to take dominion over the earth. I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And Adam became, if you will, the thing that held earth together with heaven. Now, God is over heaven and earth, yes. But God gave the management of earth to men. It says, the Bible says he's given earth to the sons of men. And so you need to know that what connects heaven to earth, because God wanted heaven to influence earth. And essentially what he's telling Adam when he says take dominion is, hey, I want you to bring the realm and the reign of the kingdom of God into the earth. I want heaven to oversee earth. I want heaven, if you will, to influence earth. And the person he assigned that task to was Adam. But when Adam was sinned and was disconnected from God, here was what happened. Earth was disconnected from heaven. And so we go thousands of years with earth disconnected from heaven, and it goes south really bad and really fast, right? As soon as heaven and earth are disconnected, next thing you know, there's the first marital conflict, right? Then there's the first murder, and it just goes south from there till by Genesis chapter six, God's like, I'm done with the whole thing. And God raises up Moses and floods the earth, right? And starts over and Moses gets right off the ark and gets drunk and naked. And God's like, I just can't win with these people. Why? Why? What happened? The influence of the kingdom wasn't present on the earth. And when you leave earth without an influence of the kingdom, darkness has a heyday. Sin and death run rampant. And so when what Christmas is about, Christmas is about God sending a son who was also a king who could actually unite both realms again so that heaven could influence earth. Jesus' first message sounded like this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, I'm a king and there's a kingdom. And for the first time since the garden, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. And when Jesus went around healing people, he didn't do it because he's a sensationalist. He didn't do it because he needed Twitter followers. He didn't do it because he needed an offering. When Jesus went around healing people, he did it because the kingdom was here. And when heaven influences earth, blind people can see. Lame people can walk. Dead people can live again. Right? And so what Jesus' message and his mission was is, hey guys, the way God designed this was for heaven and earth to be linked by a son so that heaven could influence the earth through the son. And Jesus said, I came because Adam was a son of God. I'm a son of God. I came so that now you can be sons of God. And Jesus looks at, at a motley crew of now 11 people. And he says, 
I don't call you servants, but friends. Then they became sons. And he says, now go into all the world and preach the gospel. What was the gospel? It wasn't just you can be saved from sin. The gospel that Jesus preached was the gospel of the kingdom. It was the good news that heaven and earth are now connected again. And heaven can influence the earth again. And now we can see God's power and rule and dominion in the earth again. Not only can we know him, not only can we hear him, but we can experience his kingdom and his power and his rule. And, and in fact, what Jesus is saying, there is a reality that is more powerful and greater than the reality you can see in earth. And it's the reality of the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, Paul said it this way, don't look at what you can see because what you can see is temporary. But look at what you can't see because, because what you can't see is eternal. Here's what he's saying. There's something more real than what you can see. There's something more powerful than what you're experiencing. There's something far greater in reality than the reality that you're living. And that's called the kingdom. And where it used to be separated from the earth, now because of Christmas... Now because of the son who was also a king and because of his work of redemption, now the two realms are connected again. And what connects them now is you and I. And now the challenge to us is to live more cognizant of the reality of heaven than of the reality of earth. And stop surrendering to the reality of earth, but start seeking the reality of heaven until we see heaven in the earth. Do you see that? Um, <clears throat> Jesus gave us this great talk in Matthew 6 about not worrying what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. And then Matthew 6.33 says the famous verse that everybody can quote, but even though it's easy to quote, it's not necessarily easy to live. How many have found that to be true with a lot of verses? Man, that quote's so good. And then I try to live it. I'm not that good at living it, right? But Matthew 6, 33 is that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. And there's a lot of ways you could teach this verse. and You could focus on what's going to be added. You could focus on what you seek. You could focus on priorities. But I just thought, I thought this, is, this to me is the key of bringing heaven to earth. This is the key of keeping them connected. And this is the key of seeing heaven and the earth. I think this verse is it. It's about what we seek. And it's about what we seek first. And whatever you seek first organizes everything in your life. You seek first financial prosperity. Money's going to organize everything in your life. You seek a particular, you want a boyfriend and that's what you seek first. Then relationships are going to organize everything in your life. That doesn't usually work, but Merry Christmas and good luck. <laughs> right? Not only that, if, if pain is, is the thing that drives you, you seek first comfort, then everything in your life is going to be about comfort and you're never, going to li you're never actually going to deal with the reality of your own life because the realities of our life sometimes are painful, right? And so whatever you're seeking first is going to organize the rest of your life. But here's what he says. There's something that needs to organize your life because it has the power to make your life what it needs to be. And that is that when the kingdom organizes your life, then you get God's rule and you get God's power and you get God's goodness and you get God's provision and you get God's blessing in your life. And so Jesus is saying, hey, here's the secret to the whole deal. 
Seek first the kingdom. And I looked at that. When you look at kingdom, it means rule or realm or dominion or authority. In other words, we're, we're actually supposed to set ourselves towards the power and dominion and rule of God. We're supposed to live cognizant of God's kingdom and God's power and the fact that we can access it from the earth, that it's actually here, according to Jesus. But then I thought, well, you know, that gets a little bit ambiguous and, and it's kind of, you know, kind of hard to wrap your brain around. And then I looked at the word seek and I looked up seek and seek has three definitions. And to me, this is the best application I can give you. So if you want to write these down. But when it talks about seeking the kingdom, the first definition was of seek was to search for and find. To search for and find. So I should live searching for and finding the realm and the reign and the authority of God. It's present here. So whatever situation I'm in, I should start looking for God's word. I should start looking for what God says. I should start looking and listening for what God's doing. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? So now I'm living, searching for the realm of God's kingdom. I'm searching for God's power and God's presence in this world. It says to search for and find it. Jesus' first message, Matthew 5. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, you can access it. If you'll search for it, you can find it. And so, so when I'm seeking first the kingdom, here's the first thing. I'm looking for and I'm finding God's power and rule. That's what you should be doing this morning. You didn't come to church because it's Christmas. Maybe you did, and that's nice and all. But you should be here looking for the kingdom. You should be here looking for God's rule and looking for God's authority and listening for God's word and understanding what God says about whatever it is that's going on around you. So search for and find. Here's the second thing. Attempt to obtain and do. So now I'm going to try to, to hold on to what God's saying. Hold on to what God's doing. Hold on to what, what, what I think God's working. Hold on to what God's revealing. I'm going to get a hold of it. Jesus said it this way. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, not only do I search for and find it, but I also obtain it and I make it a part of my life. And then I do it. I do it God's way. I live from the kingdom instead of from earth. And then here's the last thing. And ask for it. So what does seek mean? Well, seek means, first of all, I search for and find. Seek means, secondly, I attempt to obtain and do. And seek means, lastly, that I ask for it. Isn't this what Jesus told us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Do you know the first thing we're supposed to pray, the highest priority in prayer, is to ask for God's kingdom? Do you know that God's not Santa? Because when we go visit Santa, we get in his lap with our list of things we want. And sometimes I think we get a little bit confused and we start thinking God's Santa. Oh, dang, he had to go there. And we, we approach our prayer time as, oh, this is where I get in the lap of Father Time and tell him all the things I need him to do. Now, don't amen, because we're all guilty. Just fine. Just stare at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, preacher. I'm all in there interceding for the kingdom. And... But sometimes we, we get in there and we say, God, here's all. This. And really, we're supposed to get into, get into the king, get into prayer. And say, God, I want to know your kingdom. I'm searching for your kingdom. I'm looking for it. I'm trying to do it. I'm asking for it. 
I'm seeking your kingdom first. Here's what Christmas makes possible. It makes it possible to actually know God, to actually have an experience with him, to actually have multiple experiences with him. It it makes it possible to know his voice so that he can guide me and so that he can lead me and so that I can follow him. But it also makes it possible to know his power and dominion and rule and know that we're not trapped on earth until God rescues us, but rather God's already rescued us so that we can see heaven on the earth. That's what Christmas makes possible. That's why we talk about Christmas possibilities because because of Christmas, there's some things that are possible that have never or were never possible before. Amen? Is that a good word? Why don't you stand with me? Yeah, give God a praise. Come on, a good praise.